Good. Hey, this is Bob Nalbandian. And Matt Hartnett. From the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. You can subscribe and download all episodes of the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast via the CMS Podcast Network at cmspn.com or any of your favorite podcast directories, including Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and more. And while you're at it, be sure to rate and comment about the podcast and spread the word. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast, go to our PayPal account at shockwavesskullsessions at gmail.com. Thanks for all your support of the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast over the years, and stay tuned for more great episodes every week. You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. All right, here we are, Shockwave Skull Sessions, episode number 104. I got my partner, Matt Harnett. What's happening, Matt? What's going on, Bob? Looking forward to this one today, man. Yeah, man, we got a very special guest, uh, Danny Zalisco, the author of a brand new book called Total Excess. Total Excess, not access, it is excess with the dollar signs, correct? All excess. All, All excess. excess. I'm, I'm saying total excess. I'm thinking of total access studio, and now I'm saying total, to, uh, so all excess. There you go, with the uh, uh, dollar sign symbols as the S's uh, in the title. So, uh, 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 you know, I always say about these books, um, I love getting the perspective of somebody outside of the musicians, whether it be a roadie or a producer or a promoter, because you seem to get more of the the facts straight for once because most musicians during those days were pretty hammered and uh, they're uh, you know don't remember quite as well as some of the uh, road crew or road managers or producers or as I say promoters and you always have a different perspective always kind of an interesting uh, perspective and you're not afraid to tell the whole story a lot of musicians obviously they're going to keep some stuff out that they might be embarrassed about or they might not remember it correctly so again uh, it's, it's always great to read these these books Danny. Well, I tell you what, the uh, the musicians, they don't know anything about mm. the stories or what's going on at a show because they're not there. Right. You know, they show up at five o'clock for sound check. So they yeah. have no idea what's taking place around that show pretty much from the time it was booked till the time they get off stage. Mm. All they know is they better show up and play and be good. Um, you know, but other than that, you're right. Um, you know, the roadies, the road managers, the promoters, the booking agents, everybody else has a lot more knowledge of what's happening at each of these shows, which if, if the people who bought tickets knew half the stuff that was going on, they'd, they'd have a good laugh. Yeah. Plus you have the perspective of the business end too. what goes on being a promoter, what goes on before the show, what goes on after the show. All the stuff that goes on in between, and uh, that's, that's always a job. Oh, there's Jimmy. Hey. Oh, we got our <laughs> our uh, second, I guess, co-host slash guest, Jimmy Arsenault. Uh, what's happening, Jimmy? You're a little bit. Can you put a little bit more light on there? Or uh, actually, he's, I, good. I, I he's good. He's good. He's good. You're good. All right. So, how you doing there, Jimmy? This is Jimmy Arsenault. Meet Danny Zalisco. Hey, Jimmy. Danny. What's up, how man? How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. So let me promoters. tell you something. I've got to tell okay. you right before we even start, I heard your name even before I got into the game. So you are 
it's like meeting like a rock star right now to me. So, <laughs> all right, well, tell I, I probably got to get a joint and relax here with you. <laughs> there you well, go. Nice. You got your rum and coke. You're ahead of us. So, oh shit, you, you, know, you were thinking ahead. There you go. Uh, you might have to get a refill there, Danny. Oh, I will. <laughs> well, right on it, uh, Jimmy. This is our my partner Matt Hartnett. I don't know if What's you guys officially. How are you doing? How you doing, nice brother? Nice to meet but you. Since, since we got you on, let me give a quick intro about you, Jimmy. You're obviously from the Bay Area. And as you know, uh, Danny started the Bay Area working with Bill Graham. Now, didn't you do a lot of work with Bill Graham or co-shows at the, the Omni? Or did he just work exclusively the Fillmore's? No, I... I uh, on the greens and all that. But. No, I got to, I got to, of course, rub shoulders with the mighty Bill Graham, but I never worked under him, no. I gotcha. Well, why don't you uh, kind of give a give a little background about uh, what what you did, and then you and Jimmy could—I mean, you and Danny could—you uh, uh, know—relate some. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of relatable stories from when. Da so, Danny, <laughs> did you start in the Bay Area? Was that your beginning as a promoter? I I know um, back in. Oh, go ahead. Not not really. Um, I I came out there in '72 after I got out of high school, and and I tried. I tried to get a job with BGP, but I couldn't do that. I, I managed to be there and involved in just one show that summer, and uh, which I wrote about in the in the book, which was a kind of an amusing story. Of that's a great story, yeah. You know, um, mm -hmm. me walking onto an equipment truck and and uh, acting like I worked for the band or the promoter and English <laughs> accents and. Everything else, uh, and then Bill busted me later that night, and I tried to get a job. I think he liked me. I hung out with him all night, but uh, they had no openings at that time for people who knew nothing and were 17 years old and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, were looking for paychecks. So the good news was I didn't get hired, and, and I went back to Chicago and, and finished my business there as a kid growing up, and I moved to Arizona, and I started promoting shows there, but it was definitely with the inspiration um, of Bill, whether he gave it to me on purpose or not. Uh, it was, uh, he, he was an awesome man. And, and I, I'm really happy to say that after, you know, some years later, I actually got to be friends with him and, and uh, we had a, we had a great few years together and, and I wouldn't trade him for anything. And you said that was kind of common for to, to begin in the promoting game is to kind of, help as a as a roadie and to get your foot in the door and uh with these promoters and kind you, of get you you know you you gotta do something and i mean it's like for for being a promoter i mean it's such a special kind of a job or a task that only a lunatic would would accept <laughs> um you know because before before you get into being a promoter you don't really know a whole lot of of anything about anything. I mean, in my case, I didn't. I was 17, 18, 19 years old. So that coupled with the fact that I had no skills, uh, you know, meant that I was just a dumb little kid who had the right intentions. And the difference between me and a lot of the kids that, well, they all have good intentions, but that aren't as goofy as others, you, you get through. And you know, as long as you're able to master the art of belonging against all odds, you have a chance of, of getting through and actually doing something in the music business anyway. And and that's kind of that's kind of what happened for me. But I mean, 
after a while, you got to stop BSing and there's no more smoke and mirrors. You got to do something and deliver something or people are going to go, why is he here again? You know, and suddenly mm -hmm. you're out of a gig. So you better do something right. Sure. Right on. Yeah, you know, uh, I had Andy, no idea what any of that means, but it, it seems <laughs> <important>. <laughs> got you where well, you are, man. Yeah, man. Well, Dan, you know, one of the things about you, uh, you, you, you definitely took the road less traveled to, you know, your success as a promoter. I mean, as a guy who had, like you mentioned, very, uh, very little to no experience, you also, you know, eventually wisely went into a mid-major market like Arizona and Phoenix, which didn't have, you know, uh, much of a vibrant scene at that time in terms of having live rock music even though there was obviously a market for it that you wound up tapping into, you know, and as you mentioned in the book, there was only about one venue at the time in the Phoenix area, right. That would put on bigger rock shows. I mean, so yeah. before you went to Arizona, were you already aware that there was, you know, I guess great potential in that market, including Vegas and in Mexico, which of course became your, your eventually your, your territory there. I went, um, um, I went a second time to, uh, to Arizona and that was, Later, hmm, was it later that year? Or maybe it was early 73. And I saw John Mayall play at the Celebrity Theater. Mm, okay. And so this was, you know, this is when John wasn't 100 years old. I just got asked to book him, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to book him again. I'd love to see him. Um, but uh, I went to see him at the Celebrity. It was when he was doing The Turning Point, which was one of my favorite Mayall album. And... Mm -hmm. And I loved this theater, and I loved the vibe, and I loved the radio station that was there at the time. And I decided I was going to, you know, move back and permanently live in Arizona. And the promoter there only worked in that theater. And if he was, if he had really been smart, he would have just stayed in that theater and never worked anywhere else, because it's one of the best live music theaters there is. And a lot of people get outside of those smaller theaters and they get lost in the arena shuffle and the stadiums and the money and all the stuff that follows. And he was one of them. He, uh, he actually went into Scientology and we never heard from him again. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I, I kind of eased my way in as he was eased out. And um, that's why I went to Arizona because being from Chicago, uh, there was already established promoters in that market. And, and I felt like, holy cow. I mean, I came from the city of Richard J. Daley, okay? And I came from the from the Democratic National Convention in 1968 and the Chicago 7 and the trial of Julius Hoffman, 1969. And I was just getting into high school. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I probably couldn't have grown up in a more turbulent but greater time to, you know, to get into the business that I get into. So it was just going to concerts in Chicago. Um, but I, I mean, there was a thing as I think back to that, I mean, did I know I was going to do this? I don't think so, but I knew I liked it. And I know, I mean, going to concerts and buying albums and, and learning more and more about more bands and finding out more information about the business and so on and so forth as each day and each year went by, it just made sense that I got into doing this and I'm really obviously happy that I did. Um, cause I've had a, I've had a great time, you know, doing it, but I, I was having a good time before I did this. And, and I, it's, you know, it's like, it's a click of the fingers and, or a click of the Ruby red slippers, Dorothy. And it's 50 years <laughs> later and here we are. And, and 
now I'm just waiting to do concerts. I've got about 50 or 100, I don't even know, I quit counting, uh, shows that were booked prior to this time last year. And, and now we're just trying to uh, reschedule all of them. And, and you know, the greatest thing, um, not the greatest, but I mean, one of the, one of the cool things that took place um, with all the tickets that were sold, and I understand it's the same with a lot of other promoters, is that most everybody's held on to their tickets and they're waiting to go to the shows, you know, all over the place, all over the globe. Um, I, I feel like it's a real great, unity uh you know among music fans in that you know they already went through the problems or the difficulties or whatever you go through to buy tickets make sure that you're aware of it get them when they go on sale and who wants to give them back because you you'd be admitting or saying that the show is never going to happen by giving your tickets back so um we on some shows we're up to 90 percent have kept their tickets and and it's as low as 75 percent which is still three quarters of the people that bought tickets a year ago are still sitting on tickets waiting to go to their show and I'm wow. damn well going to give them their show. So wow. once all those shows happen, we'll see, we'll see what happens for me in the world after that. But uh, I got to put on those shows. I'm committed to them. Are you looking toward later this year, possibly, or have you had any word as far as, I don't know if Arizona is different than California. I'd imagine it, it I, is. Um, my, my personal, uh, uh, time that I'm aiming for is Labor Day. Oh, wow. Um, okay. I think, I think shows will happen before then. Um, I think there'll, there'll start to be some shows, perhaps some, some limited capacity type things, but I, um, I, I mean, I, I want to approach as, as we're getting closer. I, I think it would be fun for me to get a, a, some bands that would normally draw 2000 and ask them to come and do two shows and do a thousand in 2000 seats and, and let's get everybody warmed up again and used to going out again. I, I think that's going to be, you know, the re-entry uh, program here, I think is going to be very important and special to a lot of people, bands, agents, managers, promoters, everybody. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very anxious to get back at it. I haven't been a big fan of doing the social distancing type shows and, trying to reinvent the wheel and get bands to play for less money and so forth. But I'm, I'm now getting the feeling like there's going to be some bands that are going to want to be at the outset of our return to live music. And, and I think you'll, you'll start to see some special situations arise around <clears throat> the country and around the world as, as we start to open up again. I'm just hoping that, you know, I'm watching the news in some states are um, I think opening prematurely and rushing it. Uh, I hope it doesn't damage their states nor, and I don't, I hope it doesn't damage, you know, the ability for people to go from state to state and worry about, you know, those states. Um, and they're not very far away from, from Arizona. They're Texas and Oklahoma are the ones that I'm seeing where they're, you know, I mean, the authorities are telling people to take off their masks. And I, I, I quite, I don't understand that. I mean, I, you know, it's a shit kicker mentality I've never been fond of, and I'm still not, just to be honest with you. I mean, what are they thinking? Yeah. Come on. Right. Ride it out, man. Yeah. You know, we've mm -hmm. gone all it's not this much longer, way. yeah. We've gone all this way, and all of the things that have happened on a national stage, we don't have to get into all that, but 
I mean, here it is March and, and we're, we're actually, you know, vaccines are happening. I got both of mine. Um, uh, no favors were pulled. I mean, I just, I signed up like everybody else and, and more and more people are getting that done and that's great. And the numbers are going down and that's great. So there, this is not the time to lose it. This is the time to really watch your P's and Q's and stay cool. Stay cool now, man. I mean, March, April, May, we get through these next couple of months and we're home free, you know, but screw it up and we'll be right back where we were. Right. I, I, that's just my look at it. I've been playing armchair quarterback uh, like everybody else on this thing for the last year. And I don't know anything more than anybody else, but I do know that in Arizona on, on a couple of occasions, we rushed the relaxing of certain rules that should have stayed in place longer. And we got whacked really, really good and hard. And, you know, they're just now starting to go down and uh, keeping my thumbs up that they'll stay that way. I think some of the outdoor shows, uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, let me know if I'm wrong, but isn't the, uh, in Sacramento, the big Aftershock Festival with Metallica uh, doing the two nights there, that's that's scheduled for October. And as far as I know, yeah. uh, they sold most of the tickets for that. Yeah. I, it might even be sold out three nights. I think and it's sold out. It sold out. Go on sale? That went on sale like a year ago, before oh. the pandemic. So like before yeah. the pandemic, it all went on sale. And uh, 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 as far as I know, they're still looking. Again, that's in October, and it is outdoors. But we're talking, you know, 70, probably, what, 70, 80,000 people yeah. at least. I well, mean, uh, I, I'd really like to think by October they can do that. Yeah. yeah. I'd really I think outdoor might be a little easier. I don't know. But, you know. As far as the capacities go, but you know, well, I, it, it, you know, I, I mean, the, to me, the the jury's still out on that one. When you put that many people together, that's true. You know, they crowd together. It's, you can't get you dumb. can't social distance at a festival. You Mom, can't say yeah, everybody stays. You know, yeah. When when they're <laughs> doing that many people yeah. in in that you know in that space during that time, I mean, we we just gotta they they've got to be honest about you know, how they deal with that based on what information they have then. Mm. You know, I mean, if, if the numbers in California went back up again, I'd expect them to postpone it again. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it will. I hope they don't. I mean, because California is right next to Arizona, man. And I, I don't, I don't want to see any more delays either, you know, but I don't want to see any people get sick unnecessarily. I really, you know, I'm not a scientist, obviously, or a doctor, but it just seems a year later now, it's it's much different than it was for that for that March through the summer and how gnarly, you know, everything was. It it, it feels like the cloud's going to go away here real soon, and I I hope mm -hmm. I hope that feeling is correct. I mean, I'm, I I can't guarantee it. But I, I feel like this is this is coming to an end. I'd like to think that we've gone through the worst days of it. I hope so. So can I ask can I ask you something going back to what you said about unique uh, promotional ideas for shows? Um, I really think the residential residence kind of concept for playing at smaller capacity, you know, but doing multiple shows in one place, you know, because traveling costs so much money anyway you know it there's it's got to be i think that a lot of houses should start thinking that way even especially on a club level because 
you know, if you're a thousand capacity club and you can only do 350 to 500 people, you know, obviously, you know, there's, there's a balance you have to do there. I think residencies are kind of the, at least at first to kind of like get people back into the swing of things. I, I think that's uh, definitely valid. Um, you know, it, it, it boils down to what you can do financially or not do as the promoter or the group. And, you know, in the groups, you know, uh, from the group standpoint, they're used to or need to make X amount of dollars per week to pay right. their their staff and the band and the manager and the lawyers. Everybody gets paid um, depending on the size of the band. And, uh, you know, it, if somebody can draw several thousand people and they can figure out how to do multi-night stands in places, that's always been an option and always been a good idea. I haven't seen too many people do it yet. Right. Um, I, I mean, there's been a couple yeah. of instances where they're doing it, but I mean, take take a name. Uh, how about Boz Skaggs? Great name, sure. right? Sure. Now, if I did Boz Skaggs in Phoenix, I could probably draw no less than 1,500, maybe 2,000 people. If I had them over on a weekend and I had a Friday and Saturday night, I could sell a thousand tickets, twelve hundred tickets a night easily for him, if especially if it was a Friday, Saturday, and but but think of, I mean, a guy like him for one show, I mean, he's got to make fifty grand, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. and he's got to do that five times a week, right? So then it just turns into pure math. But that's a good point, uh, as I said, that you brought up, Jimmy, because I, I know, of course, Danny, you do a lot of shows in Vegas, and that's a common thing, and it's been very successful, you know, obviously with Kiss, Def Leppard, Scorpions, a lot of bands do that, you know, and, and it started with, you know, obviously the pop of Celine Dion and all that kind of stuff, and I remember quite a few years ago when Prince did that at the Forum, he did 25 consecutive nights at the Los Angeles Forum, people thought he was nuts, and it was a great thing because it eliminated the scalpers because I think it was only 25 bucks a mm. ticket. And so no one, the scalpers couldn't make, couldn't sell tickets for 300 bucks because there were 25 dates. They're just by, you know, for the next show. And it eliminated that pretty much. And it was cheap. It was great. And, you know, he still got paid a ton of money. He didn't have to travel. And I thought after that show, I said, and, and the forum at that point wasn't really active. They had just refurbished it or whatever. And uh, I heard all 25 nights pretty much sold out. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a start of something. If L.A. could do it, you know, doing what Vegas is, I think that this will be. But, and you know, there's not many artists like at the, at the level right. of Prince at the time that could pull and, that off, obviously. And you know what? I, I think by the time, you know, because everybody's just been kind of hanging around waiting. I mean, think about it. Last year in March and in April, none of us knew what this was we didn't know i mean if you had told me in march or april i wasn't going to have shows the rest of the year i would have told you you're nuts mm -hmm. you know so nobody knew the bands didn't know nobody knew anything about what was going to take place so here we are a year later and we're still talking about it i don't think any of these bands are going to come out here and 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 do anything unless they absolutely have to if they're starving they'll come out and do what we were just talking mm -hmm. about if they're not starving, they're not going to do that. They're because they they I think they there's a number of reasons, but the the bottom line is is they don't want to. I don't think they want to really goose people for giant ticket prices, 
just to come and see them. And by the same token, they don't want to go out there and lose money doing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's that fine line you got to walk where you're in the court of public opinion as far as, you know, are you doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And the bottom line is people want to have shows. I don't think people want to have shows any other way than the way that they're used to. Mm-hmm. They want to be with people, whether they know them or not, and they don't want to be like yelling across the room to say hello to somebody. Right. You know, they, yeah. they want to be right there. I, that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm yeah. feeling. That's what I'm seeing. And I think that's eventually what's going to come out. We'll, we'll, we'll do things the way we've always done them. You know, there's been talk too about having, uh, you know, I know it's a little, you know, before, but you know, having these vaccination sort of uh, passports. Do you think that's something that's going to ever come into effect, where you're going to need to prove that you've got vaccines in order to attend a show? Um, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad idea. I have mm-hmm. uh, taken a photograph of the card that they filled out each time I got my two shots. Mm-hmm. I have that on my phone in the event somebody wants to see it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I mean, think. Most people that already got vaccinated, they didn't get any kind of passport, or maybe they got like a, a receipt or an invoice, but who knows no, if they held on to it. Where, where, where I was, each time you got one, they gave you an, a, an official card. Oh, oh they do? Okay. You got to keep this with you. Oh, really? Okay. I wasn't aware so, of that. So uh, okay. I, I think that I think that showing people that uh that you have that is, is definitely a plus in terms of gaining entry to anywhere um the same thing uh i mean could be said for for the quick tests i mean which i was thinking last year while everybody's sitting here scrambling trying to figure out what the vaccine is and how do you make it and what's it going to consist of i was thinking the whole time well but not everybody's got this thing in fact more people don't have it than do have it obviously why couldn't we have just spend a little bit of that time and anguish on developing a, uh, a quick test where in five mm-hmm. seconds or five minutes, everybody knows what's going on. You can go in and have your shows and, and yeah. do your church and do your grocery shopping, go to your baseball games and all the rest of that stuff. And you know, it, that didn't happen. Yeah. So uh, I think now as we're reentering the world again, as we used to know it a year ago, um, I think there's going to be probably a little bit of a time period where I think until people are going to be a hundred percent feeling great about being around strangers, um, you should probably have something on you that you can prove to anybody you want that you're cool and you have a right to be wherever it is that you're standing at any given time because you're as you're as clean and legal as you can be. All right, mm-hmm. well, let's get that, it's important, you know, yeah. to a lot of people. I get asked by friends of mine who are so spooked by all this. Like uh, um, somebody here in Hawaii. In Hawaii, it's got the lowest sickness rate and death rate, and I think in the world, or one of the best things. And a guy over here, from, he's from Chicago, but he's, he's living out here now, and he, he wanted to know before I came over if I'd had my tests and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know, you're kind of taking the fun out of me coming over to see you. I mean, it's like you're, you're like asking me to put on a condom before I even leave the house. <laughs> you know, I, I was nothing about you guys, but I was never big on those things. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, um, I, I'm just so I'm so over all of this. I'm so looking forward to, uh, you know, the biggest problem that I have is that the show did come off and I I didn't sell ten tickets. That's right. the problem I want to think about. <laughs> this other right. stuff's too much for me, man. 
Sure. Right on. Well, let's get deep into the book, uh, how you start out. You were a big sports aficionado, and, and the book is great because you have some fantastic photos of, of all, all the stuff. I even saw the video of you going on stage with Scorpions and all the different stuff that Chip, Chip had sent. Uh, but in the book, you know, you have stuff like a letter from Yogi Berra and all, you know, you were collecting, you know, autographs and you were, uh, and that's kind of, you were kind of a, a bit of a hustler, which, you know, kind of, it's based, basically what promoters were, especially back in the seventies, they all kind of started out in that kind of uh, a fashion. And it was kind of, um, uh, that was kind of what the, the whole promoting game was, was back then. You had to be the, you had to know the art of the hustle. And, uh, you know, and, and it was it was a gamble, you know, it was a risk, you know, like you said, the big shows, it was, you know, you can make a hell of a lot of money doing a show at, at a big stadium, but the risk is also a lot greater, you know, and the expense is a lot greater. So uh, talk about the early days pre um, uh, uh, your promoting and, and doing the whole uh, sports thing and, and getting to know people like Brian Piccolo and so forth. You know, uh, when when you're. When you're a little kid and, and before you know anything about anything, you look up to people around you, whoever's nearby. In, in my case, I had my dad, my mom, my brothers, um, you know, and, and, and I started going to school. And right around the same time I started going to school, I started learning how to read off of baseball cards. And I was four or five years old. I mean, I, I entered first grade reading better than the nuns. Okay. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that I was that smart. They didn't like that I could do batting averages in second grade. That pissed yeah. them off to no end. Because <laughs> they, they want to treat you like a little kid. And they want to yeah. teach you themselves their way. And, and instead, you got this wise ass in the front row. Because I always had to be in the front row. Because I was loudest. They wouldn't let me be in the back. You know, I, I started with a Z. I started at the last seat in the, in the room every school year. And by the end of the first day, I was always at the front of the class. And it wasn't for being good. Um, anyway. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole thing about sports when I was a little kid, the fascination of it, baseball stars and football stars in the late fifties and the sixties, they were the rock stars. There was not a rock and roll business like we know it now. There wasn't a rock and roll business in the sixth, in the early sixties. I mean, Elvis was there. Uh, and, and, and the Four Seasons were there, and Gene Pitney was there, and Dion and the Belmonts were there, and all of those guys, the, the guys with the hair, you know, and, and I mean, the, the world didn't wake up musically for kids, for real, until the Beatles came. You know, now, I'm a little bit biased because I wasn't around for when Elvis first came out and all those other groups came out, but they created quite a stir themselves. I know they did but nothing like the Beatles. The Beatles changed everything. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and while it was changing everything, it, it, it took kids like me and, and my focus away from sports because these guys were more exciting. They were funny. I mean, they were cute. Girls loved them. Girls didn't like baseball players. Girls <laughs> didn't like football players. They liked... Beatles and the guys with the hair and the suits and the thing, you know, so that's what kind of, I mean, it was a cultural thing as much as anything else that I think influenced the whole country, the whole world. When, when the mop tops came along, <laughs> the mop tops and, and <laughs> I mean, everybody changed everything in one year's time. 
65. You wouldn't recognize 1963 in 1965. It was like the old days. It really was. I got my first Beatles single at the end of March. This year, this month, 63, 58 years ago, I got Please Please Me this wow. month. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it changed my life. It changed how I heard music. It changed what I thought of England. Before that, I never. What, what did what did anybody know about England? <laughs> it, they knew there was a queen and and and, right. and no king. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there and there and there wasn't any princesses and, and and these princes and all these people. I can't keep my you know I can't keep keep it straight. Those poor kids. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, 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 and now I, you know, I found out my grandfather was English and Irish. They were his parents were from the UK. I love the UK. I feel a kinship to it. Um, I'm actually looking into getting a, a passport to be a UK citizen because that's what I think about Britain. I love the UK. I love everything about it. I love going there. I love staying there. I love eating there. I'm nuts. I like the food. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's a great place, and and the Beatles made that so for me. Um, how how that all changed uh, late later was how did I know? Ten years later, I was going to be promoting shows, and 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 a couple of years after that, I'd be meeting George Harrison and working for him, yeah, or, nice. or, or you know, and being around these, these guys. I mean, it, it's just nuts, but it was great, you know. I, it and, and it still is uh, being around these guys. Who, who kind of fell into stuff by accident, just like I did. I mean, I think, I mean, tell Paul McCartney, he was going to still be known and playing bass right. guitar at almost <laughs> 80 years old. Yeah. And he'd tell you you're crazy because he never gave that a thought. Oh, they all thought it by 40, they're done. You know, you know, you know like I mean, Jagger like said, I'm, you know, I'd hey, kill me if I'm 40 years old and still doing this. You well, know, well, like, think it, about there it. is I twice mean, that age. <laughs> they, they only recorded records for less than seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Beatles, really yeah. nuts when you think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they were a very short-lived group. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many groups that, that lasted for seven years have people still playing their music and still talking about it to this day? And they had a lot yeah, of music within those seven years. A lot. Yeah. 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 It's a well, lot. Zeppelin did about 10 years. You know what? Uh, not to get on a Beatle grant, but I have to agree with you. The thing that blew my mind about the Beatles' history was not only – did the world get captured by the innocence of the Beatles? The music fans grew up with the Beatles as they progressed musically and got into the Revolver and the White Album and just, you know, Sgt. Pepper. It was like the fans were running at the same speed they were. It was like you haven't seen a band, you know, the Rolling Stones are the Rolling Stones, God bless them, but the Beatles were a band that just kind of like blended genres like nobody else and like went places you know, that were just outlandish for a pop band to do, which they were a pop band, you know? Yeah. It, you know, it, it's something else. And, and, and to, for me to, to have actually found myself working with them. And I I don't mean to gush, but I, I save gushing for those type of things. Uh, I, I've, uh, I thank them, you know, for doing what they did because it got me to do what I did. And uh, it, it's weird to think about it that way, but it's true. You know, I, I, I would have never, I, I don't think I would have ever done this had it not been for them. 
So now I've got to, I've got I'm sorry to interrupt. I've got to ask you, were you shitting yourself the first time you met George Harrison? Did you You have to use a poker face or were you in the moment? Full poker face. (laughs) Wait wait a minute. Ready? It gets better. You know, I'm Catholic, right? So or I was raised Catholic. I found out later I was Jewish, but I was raised Catholic. (laughs) And uh, my confirmation name was George. So let me. Wow. That should give you an idea how I felt about George. Wow. (laughs) I did that when I was, what, fifth grade, so I'm 11? Yeah. And of all the names in the world that I picked, my dad goes, it better be the Dragon Slayer, not that fucking beetle. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I said, oh, no, Dad, dragons, dragons all the way, man, dragons. <laughs> um, and I told George that story, and he, he, he had the greatest laugh about it. Um, he, he had lost his voice, uh, you remember, on that tour, uh, because he, he hadn't sung live really that much ever. And um, I, I put his dressing room together. That was my job for the day was I, I had to put up the... Um, tapestries and the incense and the lighting and make it a cool like room for him to sit in and get his massage and and all that and um they asked me to go out and get vinegar for him to gargle with and i go i'm no doctor right what why you're how about hot tea and lemon with honey did that doesn't work we got to get drastic we got to get my voice back so I went out and got him this vinegar and he gargled and it got worse. It was painful. It was like, we were like all kind of almost in tears, you know? And so wow. was he. he was as upset as you can see anybody because you got nine, 10,000 people coming to see you to sing and, and, and you can't sing. And it, it was, it was just terrible for him. Um, that, that was one of the hardest things ever to watch. I mean, like, which should have been such a glorious night for him. Because he right. he truly loved doing that show and, and that music. I mean, this remember this is like just a couple years after all things must pass came out, and he's playing all wow. those songs live. I mean, ah, wow! You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he couldn't sing. Oh, it was yeah. terrible! It was yeah. terrible. And, and and he even had that that cool Dark Horse record out that had some really nice songs that he couldn't sing. Nothing. Beatles songs. Oh. And they had people to help cover. Were the fans disappointed or did they understand? Huh? I said, were the fans disappointed or were they understanding? Well, sure they were, but they were so enamored with him just being there. You know, and, 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 you know, God bless him. He did as great of a job as he could. Nobody walked out of there saying, oh, that was awful. You know, it was just like everybody felt bad for him. You know, Uh, this this isn't a, you know, I mean, he never toured again. And, and I think that had a little bit to do with the fact that of how hard of a time he had. He, he never wanted to go through that again. I mean, I, I, I was always asking, you know, uh, the, the various managers, let's have a traveling Wilburys tour, for Christ's sake. Ooh. You know, I mean, who didn't want to see that? Dude. You know? Yeah. Um, and and uh, I, I think it was George, because all the other guys toured. Yeah. All the other guys toured. I mean, Tom was always touring, and uh, Roy toured a lot. I did shows with him. He was lovely. And and uh, uh, Jeff Lynn, well, he, he didn't tour forever. And then 
Now he goes yeah, out and he finds out he's still yeah. got a big audience. Well, did he? Mm -hmm. ELO just came through here the last time yeah. they came through here yeah. with George's son. Ago. George's son's band opened up for him. But that cat's band is really good. It better be. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then he came out and they did a Traveling Wilburys oh. medley. And it was just like, are you kidding me right now? Goosebumps. Like, you know, yeah. the. The, the thing that, that I always wanted to do and I got shot down all the time was I, I wanted to get Jeff to produce the Beatles family show, which would be all everybody from the family who wanted to play. McCartney's got kids. John's yeah, yeah. got kids. Right? Ringo and, and, and uh, George. Uh, and, and the guys, the living guys playing with them. They, that show could retire the debts of a lot of third world countries. Yeah. No you know shit. I mean? And 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 I I for one as a music fan, there there's a there's a couple of shows I'd like to see. I did go to I went to the uh I went to the Zeppelin show at the O2. I had Ooh. to see that. Um I went to see Cream when they played at Albert Hall in Madison Square Gardens. Um but and and I've done the Who been in who shows i do roger waters shows i've done pink floyd um but i i would like please for jeff beck and eric clapton and jimmy page to get together and do the show of shows yeah 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 the one that leaves the the, the one that revives interest all over the world in rock the the the, the masters once and for all Screw Pavarotti and all those guys. Okay? <laughs> they can sing, but they can't play a Fender. Right. Yeah. These guys can. And, and that would be the show to reinvent rock and roll again. And, and if that wasn't enough, you do this Beatles family show. And this, my friends, is what takes the world away from BTS and boy bands and rap music. <laughs> right. You get that shit yeah, out of yeah. here. And we get rock on the top 10 again where it belongs. Hmm. Well, what do you think of coming back in? You know, a lot of uh, people are talking about, especially with these rock bands. I mean, there are a lot of huge tours that got postponed or, or canceled or who knows, you know, the, the Motley, Def Leppard, a lot of stadium tours. Uh, and they're saying, you know, when things come back, because, you know, the rock metal bands, that's that's how they make their living. You know, this this is mostly a rock metal podcast. And, and going from that, a lot of people are saying once things start getting back to normal, so to speak, there will just be an influx of shows. And a lot of, let's face it, a lot of the venues, the smaller venues, the House of Blues type of venues, you know, 1,000 to 3,000 seat venues, a lot of them have closed down through, uh, throughout the country. So there'll be a heavy competition. A lot of people are, are worried mm -hmm. that it, it could uh, restrict the touring. It could raise yeah. up the prices. What's, what's your thoughts? I don't. I don't, I don't agree with any of that. I, mm. I, uh, it's like I said, people have kept their tickets. People are going to go to their shows. I, uh -oh. you know, pe when people are talking about like booking new shows right now, <clears throat> um, I don't want to stop anybody from working, but I really wish the groups that aren't booked, uh, once shows start, I, you know, once we realize that we're going to actually do this, I wish those groups would wait a few months before they got back into the mix, but you right. know, they're not right. No. You know, yeah. I mean, right now what you've got is you've got old money that's been spent by all these fans 
So they're not missing that money anymore. They've had opportunities to get refunds and they elected to keep their money. I mean, to keep their tickets. So they, money they have, if they're working, and I hope they are, um, when they start adding new shows, you know, I mean, people are going are gonna to have to be selective, not just because of money, but because of how many nights a week can they go out. Right. When this starts up again, I mean, yeah. I, I was looking at my calendar the other day. My September, forget about it. I yeah. won't sleep. I won't. I, I, may, I mean, I'll get an hour here and an hour there. And you know what? Bring it. I'm looking forward to it. I, I'd like to do that. But in the, in the meantime, I, I wish no new shows. Here's the problem with the new shows. It's not so much the competition with the other shows, no matter how big they are. But when you've got all these people lined up to see all these shows that have nothing to do with the groups that aren't booked right now, and, and you're a new group and you're a new booking, you're taking the chance of landing on a night where people have already bought tickets. And right, they're not going to come to your show, so right. don't push it. Right, take a break. Come back in twenty two, will you? I think that you know. I mean, I agree with you one hundred percent. I also think, though, at some. I mean, I don't want to be like you know a dreamer, but I have this feeling like my gut. In as far as you know, I'm not. You book arenas. I book you know sheds and nightclubs, and I think that I have this feeling that people are going to spend beyond their means when they know they can go back to a live event because they've been so desperate to be in that environment again. Uh, I don't know about the big places, but I think the nightclubs um, are going to crush in the Bay area, especially yeah. when, once they can reopen, I think it's going to be a crab feed, you know? Well, I, I, I think it will be pretty much everywhere, but I mean, the bottom line is you can only be in so many places at one time. Right. Right. And, and, and then when new shows get added, I mean, the super fans, the people who are super passionate about various groups, I mean, they'll figure out a way to get there. Right. Um, as it is, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about whether or not, um, and I'm afraid to look when I have two and three and four shows booked in the same night and not on purpose, but this is just, you know, when these shows reschedule, you got to take them when the band has to reschedule. Yeah. They're rescheduling their whole geographical tour the same way. And uh, it's always it's always funny when when you uh, have people who you're close to and, and it's not like they haven't done this before and they can do the job without you being there. But I want to be there for every show. Right. It's one of it's one of my things is like after after taking the risk you know, sometimes it's very limited risk, but sometimes it's real risk. Every time you put on a show though, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like giving birth and, and you want to see what the baby looks like a few and, months later. And, and, but, and let's be honest though, promoters and talent buyers are a little bit con of control freaks. You know what I mean? Ooh. To some degree, <laughs> talent buyers and promoters are kind of control freaks a little bit. I mean, don't you want to make sure that everything's perfect? <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, you know, I'm one of those guys as I've gotten older, I've always been very content to let people in various positions that run shows for me do what they do. Yeah. And uh, I mean, as long as I can show up and there's a parking spot, and, and, a, and an office for me and hopefully with a private bathroom and uh, and uh, and a place to eat and a, and a seat for me to go watch a show. I mean, I'm a happy guy. 
And and it's like you can't get those things if you're worrying about all that other garbage. So but I, you're still you know, thinking but, about them. What? Those are those things are still going on in your head. Letting your people do their jobs is very important, absolutely. But in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, hands off. But in my head, I'm like watching everybody going, oh shit. <laughs> Am oh, I there I, to catch? I didn't say I wasn't watching. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> no, you know, you know, you know how weird it is for me to go to somebody else's show. Oh yeah. It is you know how hard it is, right? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you you can't I mean if everything's okay and, and your entrance to the place is okay, say say the promoter or the band or somebody who you're going to see, they know you and they take care of the one thing they know you want. Parking. Yeah. <laughs> right. you know? The world is about parking, man. So they, your your night, your night is gonna be guided by how well you got into the building and parked. Right. If your parking screwed up, guess what's next? No tickets and your passes are stickies after show. <laughs> <laughs> forget catering and forget the bathroom. Forget going into the band's dressing room and raiding their booths. Nothing like that. <laughs> now, now, if your parking pass is waiting for you and you show up, you can bet you're going to have a good time that night. Right. It's really true. I mean, it sounds funny, but it's true. You know, let's go and back. I have friends oh. like that too. They want to go. So how's parking at the show tonight? <laughs> oh, I'm going to have a hard time. Forget it. I ain't coming. <laughs> well, let's go back to the, I'm, I'm sorry, Jimmy. I was just saying, let's go back uh, to the early days. You know, Jimmy had mentioned something, and I think it was so true back in, in the 70s and 80s, how, you know, people like promoters or certain, you know, photographers or producers that you knew, they were like rock stars to us, to us fans growing up, just as, as the bands. It was uh, and you guys were kind of treated as such, and you played that role, you know. I mean, I see you up on stage with Scorpions and the stuff, the backstage part. I've been to, you know, promoters and see them. They're like a part of the band, and it was, you know, I know it's changed now a lot, but back in the day with the big backstage parties and the craziness and stuff, it was insane. But going back uh, to the '70s and stuff, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the music business, you know, with the mafia and all the stuff, and it, you know, with the promoters, there was a lot of death threats. I mean. There was a lot of crazy shit going on. Let's face it back there, especially with a lot of the big shows. Uh, you know, of, of course, Peter Grant supposedly changed a lot of stuff the way that the system was. And he cared for the band when Zeppelin came in. It was like, you do this. We get this amount of money. No? or oh, No, no. It was oh. something else. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, you know, but, you know, from, from what I've read, that was kind of a game changer uh, when, Zeppelin, when, when Zeppelin kind of came through with, with Peter Grant. The way that uh, he know, did the business was, with the promoters, it was like was, we got a hundred ninety percent of the door or whatever kind of thing. Well, you know that whole experience and, and it, that was a game changer for BGP. It really, it really wasn't for the business. I don't think. Um, you know that that was a very unfortunate day that they had there, and but as far as the business part of it goes. Yeah, Peter. Peter was instrumental in changing the the way the mechanics of the of the deal structures changed over the years, for sure. And you know, we went from you know, like Herbie Herbert paying twenty five grand for Journey versus an eighty five fifteen, 
and, and then you got Peter Grant in there and, and a, a suddenly it was a million dollars versus 95%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, Hey, look, if you're lucky enough to get a Zeppelin show, you paid it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, it's going to sell out. Know, but, but in the, in the, uh, in the other cases, I mean, you know, it, it just shows you how, you know, young our business is and, and, and was, uh, you know, when things changed as they did in the 70s, people were realizing how much money there was to be made and what was on the table or, you know, and who was getting what. And as you keep repeating the, uh, you know, the, the whole calendar of going around and touring and going to various cities along with the cycle of your record albums, um, you know, you, you, and, and remember back then in the seventies, our tickets were locked in at five, six, seven, eight dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember my first ten dollar ticket was in nineteen seventy eight, and Dooley's nightclub in Tempe on Thanksgiving. I charged ten dollars for Van Morrison, and they screamed for my fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> ten bucks. For yeah. van and seven hundred seats. That doesn't and even Bill cover the service fee these days. Bill Graham <laughs> managed them, and, uh, and 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 we were going to have Robin Williams open for a hundred bucks. Wow! Van Morrison got four thousand guarantee for that show, and and that he canceled it. That fucking van. He oh. canceled the show. Um, oh. You know, it, it was awful. But anyway. Uh, yeah, but 10 bucks. So yeah. everything did change. But, you know, when the only thing that could, could really affect the band's pay was charging more money for tickets. You know, I mean, they, they locked them in at that cheap ticket price for years. And, and people were very spoiled by it, rightfully so. But when tickets got up to 10 and then 15 and then 20, I mean, we all felt like we were like, you know, talking dirty in church, <laughs> you know, I mean, because people were not happy about, you know, those ticket prices going up when they really, really started going up, I'm afraid was, was, was when in the nineties, when all the consolidation started happening is when they really went berserk. Yep. 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 Um, and, and, and you had this competition with superpowers between each other competing for tours and suddenly, you know, a band that you paid a hundred grand is now getting a half a million. You know, uh, Fleetwood Mac was one of those groups. I mean, they they went from being huge to out of this world in the outer space. Um, with you know, and 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 damned if people just didn't pay those tickets. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's like I've I've always been, you know, with with scalpers being involved and third parties and all that stuff. I've always been a big fan of uh, charging the people down in front as much as you can possibly get for them. But the rest of the house should be normal. You know, I mean, you shouldn't be asked to spend more than 10 or 15 bucks to sit on a lawn for anybody. Right. right. Um, yeah. You know, you're not down in front with a chair. It's, I mean, it's not even human. <laughs> and you're going to pay yeah. 50 bucks to go on some lawn for somebody because they got to make $5 million that night. It, you know, it's a weird business in that regard, but hey, look, 
I know a lot of people right now be happy to pay 50 bucks to sit on the lawn. <laughs> right. Sure, yeah. I'm Point. one of them. I'm one of them. Yeah, sure. Hey, Danny, speaking of big shows, did you do that show at Bank One Stadium in, in Phoenix? Uh, what was it? 98 into 99, the big Black Sabbath. It was Black Sabbath, Pantera, Megadeth. I know you've worked with Megadeth a lot out there. That I, I was. That was a fantastic show at, at the stadium. It what was, a great show. Great. You know, Slayer. What was yeah. what was so funny about that night is like the same night mm. I had Shania Twain a block away at the basketball arena. Oh wow. <laughs> so I, I had my own I had my own golf cart with my own driver, right? Which was like really cool. And I went I, I, I know that probably doesn't sound like a really big deal, but <laughs> for me that night we were we sold $3 million worth of tickets wow. between the two shows. That was New Year's every Eve. Pick, yeah. Every ticket was sold for both shows. Yeah. And, and I got to have this joke all night long going back and forth. I get in the cart and I'd say, all right, where am I? Am I going to heaven or hell now? And I got, you know, I got to spend really good time that night with Tony Iommi, who's my favorite guy with Sabbath. I love Ozzy. I love Geezer, but me and Tony have always been especially close. And, and we were, and in fact, one, at one point I drove him down there with a hood on. And I brought him by the side of the stage so he could. He goes, I just want to see Shania for 10 seconds. Tony, wow. this is cool. so wow. here's me and Tony Iommi in the barricade of Shania. Twain. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah. um, it was great. She saw us too, and she thought it was hilarious. Yeah. She told me about it later. She was great. Uh, but anyway, that, that, was, uh, that was the first show that, that stadium, the ballpark, ever had. That's and, right. That uh, stadium just opened. And, yeah. And what a what a night that was. Um, yeah. Well, that was I, Sabbath's first show as a reunion in the states. I know they did the things in Birmingham, and that was their very first U.S. appearance as Black I, Sabbath in like I, what, I years. love Black Sabbath. Black Black Sabbath is, is, Black Sabbath is the 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 heavy metal Beatles. Yeah. They oh, they sure, are yeah. the band. Oh, yeah. Now, did you you put that bill together? Because I know it was a one-off show; it wasn't a tour, but it was such a great bill. Pantera, Slayer, Megadeth, um, and I think Soulfly opened. If I'm we, uh, I did that with Sharon Osborne, okay. but Sharon Sharon had the idea for most of those groups. I, I, I would I would give her the credit for that. Right on. Right. Very cool. Hey, so Danny, just you know, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, in terms of going back to the book, you know, one of the toughest I think moments is when you talk about having to sell your company evening star, which, you know, probably had to be obviously one of the most, I'd say difficult things you probably had ever had to do in your life. And I think what made it worse is, was that, you know, you had no idea that the sale was all part of a preconceived plan to, you know, essentially monopolize the whole concert promotion market, which we don't know today as live nation. Ugh. Probably the only part of the book where, uh, you know, scumminess for lack of a better word, where it comes in, but you know, it really rears its ugly head, obviously. Uh, the music business in that instance. So talk about, I guess, just a bit about how frustration, you know, frustrating it is for you to have to watch what they're doing right now to the industry as a whole. Well, you know, I'm not terribly frustrated or upset or angry at all about any of that because, I mean, it's just a different game now. And I was part of it. I was part of that change. I sold into it. You know, I mean, while I'm pointing fingers, I should point one right back here at me because I sold. 
Now, mm-hmm. had I known I was going to be, you know, I'm going to move a little bit here because I'm noticing I'm getting dark. And I guess the sun's going down. There we go. <laughs> so you're in Hawaii, huh? <laughs> I am. Nice. Yeah. Um, let's see. Here we go. When, when I sold, um, I didn't know that that, that was going to take place. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have done it. Um, I, I had, I mean, I, I would have had to have been sold a completely different new way um, to do the clear channel thing. Uh, and, and that didn't work out at all. I mean, that's a very long story. The thing is, is even though now, I don't get to work with a lot of the arena bands that I help build up to being an arena type of group. Um, because Live Nation or AEG will buy all of their tours and not let me have any of it. They're very greedy in that regard. But I mean, if somebody's going to put up 20 or 30 million, I guess if it was me, I wouldn't want to be sharing it either. Um, but I, I do all of my favorite groups i do my my auditorium shows my performing arts centers and occasionally some arenas uh when when my groups who haven't you know gotten so old they they lost their memories of who broke them in the southwest um Mm -hmm. i don't mind saying that because somebody forgot i mean i did james taylor for 30 years he changed managers and suddenly i don't know james taylor anymore and James Taylor loves me. I love James Taylor. Apparently his manager does. I mean, this happens with a lot of different groups. And mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm not sure why. I don't think it's me. I think it's just people getting old and lazy. Um, it's like easier to just say yes to one person instead of having to talk to three or four or five promoters. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the old days, we, we all ran our markets and we protected those areas for and on behalf of the bands. Um, so like I said, you know, sure. It upsets me when, when I don't work with somebody that I should be, it's kind of like watching somebody date your wife. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but do you think someone like to see that? Like uh, not oh, go ahead. To know about it, much less see it, but I have to do both. But I, I switched my head over to the, the right side of things there. And, and rather than get upset about it, I was like, I thank myself, uh, thank my friends for for the people that i still get to work with you know i mean there are there are so many uh incredible people since it's been 10 years valentine's day 2011 since i went back on my own and um and i and i found an email from that same month just the other day that had the bullet points for most of the chapters that are in the book um so it took me a few years to get it together and, and, and put it down um but uh, this last whole year afforded us the opportunity to put all those stories together and the pictures and some memorabilia and, and get that out. Because I think it was a story that needed to be told. Um, I don't know of another promoter book quite like this, not to pat myself on the back. But I think the rest of the promoters, I want to issue a challenge to go and do the same thing. Because people in each market have lived with each of these promoters for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And they mm. should know what was going on all that time. Mm. You know, and that mm. I kind yeah. of felt like I owed some explanations <laughs> on a few things, um, not to clear anything up that much or, or anything, but, you know, just to share with people what they didn't know. 
And, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, on top of it, I'm proud of that. So um, everybody in Phoenix has really rallied around uh, in Vegas and elsewhere, have rallied around the, uh, the fact that we did this. And, and I'm really happy they liked it. Um, mm-hmm. I've got nothing but great support from it. Well, that's that's a, a great thing you bring up, and and that Matt brings up about Live Nation too, and and Jimmy could probably uh, back me up on this. It was so much different, I think, uh, you know, in the '80s into the early '90s, and then things, every, the business started to really change. You know, back I know when Jimmy, when you were booking the Bay Area, it was all about you were friends with the bands, and you had this relationship. It was a community. It was a yeah. family, you know. And I think a lot of the big cities, and that's how it seems with you, with the artists. You hung out with them. You parted with. Them. Now it's become with the live nations, and and you could go with with the radio market, with the clear channels, and this and that. They monopolized, and it became a business. It became a corporate business where you don't have that bond with the art. You don't have that. But in the same way, they monopolized. Do you think there's? It, it's it's the fact that you know because a lot of people have said that it, you know, when it comes to certain booking agents, some of the main booking agents. You know, they will Live Nation will come to them and they'll book some of their bands and they'll want an exclusive, you know, and it, right. which could have been with with a James Taylor or whatever. They said, well, you're on this booking agent. We want all your bands, you know, and that's kind of what kind of happened, I think, in, in, into the late 90s, into the 2000s. I think that's why the business has suffered a lot, too. What's what's your uh, view on that, uh, both Danny and Jimmy? Okay. I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I know what you're saying and there's there's a a bit of that out there. I, I probably felt stronger about it a few years ago. Um, this last year is, is, is knocked a little of the piss and vinegar out of me as far as not, sure. nobody being able, able to do any shows. It's kind of like uh, been a great equalizer for everybody. Nobody's been able to do anything. So I'm just as big as they are, and they're just as small as I am at right. this point. The bottom line is I, I, I don't compare anymore. Um, that's gone. When, when I can go out and do people like Todd Rundgren or John Prine, who I did so many shows with, or Tony Bennett or Frankie Valley or Tedeschi Trucks, I mean, there's all of these great bands that I'm doing business with. All of them are world class. If I don't do Britney Spears or Jennifer Lopez, am I going to lose any sleep? <laughs> right. Am I going to not? not Probably sleep a lot better. <laughs> so i mean there think think of the big groups that i broke that i'm not doing that i'm really upset about sometimes alice goes out and i can't do dates with them because they pay them uh, a big guarantee for a tour to play all the amphitheaters right. well that's the way it goes so i go to his house and have pizza instead <laughs> right and i don't gotta pay he buys that's good you know? saw that <laughs> so yeah it's good way to look bottom, at it yeah. bottom line bottom line the the guys who are my friends that i can be in business with if it can happen it happens and if it can't it can't there's very few people that i'm upset with over that there's only been a couple people that have truly ditched me and I let them know how I feel. And, and, and the fact is it is, it is what it is. They have their reasons. And the fact is, is life is going to go on. And as long as people get to see those shows and they have fun at them, I'll have mine and and I'll get my licks in and everybody can just go do whatever they got to do. I, I, I think this, uh, like I said, this whole, this whole thing that's gone on has been a hell of a learning curve for everybody. And, uh, I hope it teaches everybody, 
especially the big guys, to be more considerate uh, of everything and everybody, you know, because we're all in this together, this whole thing, not just shows and, and music and everything, but the whole world, you know, and it, there's a lot that banks on, on us bringing this back in a good way, too. So I, I'm hoping... Uh, I'm hoping business stays straight and and uh, and everybody gets to go to all the shows they ever want to. Right on. Yeah. Awesome. Jimmy, how has it affected uh, you as a uh, booking agent? Uh, the change and what have you noticed uh, a lot over the years? From uh, I know there's not as many clubs uh, around in the Bay Area like there yeah. used to be, obviously, back in the day. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, um, you know, not to talk major shit i thought that uh, you know i could see when the you know the live nations clear channel thing started to happen i knew that that was going to become a train wreck it, you said earlier it was like you know we got to hang out with all these uh musicians and stuff and we were at the shows and back then we were still trying to make money but we weren't wearing a shark suit doing it you know what i mean like i think that there's a difference between being cold and calloused and booking a show as opposed to being into what you're doing. You know what I mean? It's a different thing. Like you can do the great math and make sure that the Fleetwood Max show is going to sell out. But at the same time, are you really putting any love and compassion behind the event itself? You know what I mean? I, it's just, it, it was well, just, you know, you, you got to understand. See with me, it was a little bit different because Stevie lived in Phoenix and me and mm. her dad were best friends. And the three of us ended up owning Compton Terrace together. Nice. So yeah, it really affects me when she doesn't work for me. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You know, it, it, yeah. it, it's it's a it's a really it's a weird thing. I mean, about Business. how how you it's like separating yourself from church and state. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's really weird. You know, I mean, it's like okay, is this Stevie the singer? Is this Stevie the business person? Is this Stevie the daughter of my best friend? Right. Or is she just you know. And, and 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 I've known her since 1974. Yeah, and she was nobody, right? So you know, like, and, and that's my point about working with people is like when you when you start with them at a very early age, and now you're older and they're older too, and you're going, you're too big to work with me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. tell you what, I'll leave you a couple tickets for Tony Bennett, the way you asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's great about this book is is you really tell these old stories, and it, it is a story about you know about friendship and about relationships, uh, not and and what was built back then, which I think is sorely missed in this day and age where everything is so corporate and business. And uh, the book uh, again, all excess has fantastic photos and. Uh, really, really great stories. I know we're about an hour and a half in right now. So uh, by closing it up, Matt, was there anything you wanted to, to uh, say before we close us up and get the... No, the I just want to encourage the listeners to definitely pick this book up. Like you, you just hit it right on the you know, nail right on the head. I mean, just stories of so many different bands, a lot of metal and hard rock bands in there too. We didn't touch on any of the Guns N' Roses stuff, which is really interesting in there and, and the Motley Crue stuff. So definitely check this out. It's an excellent book. Well, if you want, we can we can have a, a, a group by group uh, call again later if you want to, and, and we can run through some of those if you feel like I'd be happy. Yeah, to sure. That would actually be fun. Yeah, awesome. because yeah. there is so much that we didn't, you know, obviously there, uh, get into and deepen. Yeah, there, yeah, there's definitely some good ones there. I I um, 
I really liked uh, doing that, um, doing the book. And, and I hope, you know, for, for any of your followers that are listening, it, I sell them at dzplive.com, which is our, our uh, Danny's Lisco Presents uh, promoter website. And um, I even have T-shirts there. I should send you guys some shirts. You need oh, nice. all excess awesome. shirt on your back. Yeah. So people know what's going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, if, if people want to uh, buy books, that's where that's the place to come. Or else, uh, if you can't remember all that, Amazon has it too. Right on. Awesome. Any Anything awesome. you want to add there, Jimmy, before we close out? Again, I want to say, Danny, like, seriously, I'm not even blowing wind up your dress. You, I've watched you for years and always been floored. by. I, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas. I used to play club gigs in New Mexico and Arizona, cover bands and all that shit. So I'm well aware of the terrain out there. It's such a great place. And I appreciate everything you've done. And now I'm going to order the book. As soon as we sign off here, I'm going to go order the book from your website. I have to read it. All right. I can't wait for you to read it. Um, and uh, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate that. It's very nice of you. Cool, man. Very Thank cool. you. A fantastic. Bob, Matt, I... Nice to meet you guys. And Same as you, Danny. If you guys, if you guys want to do something with with bands and stuff like that, and, and keep it narrowed down to that to do a show, I'd be happy to do it. That would be fun. Yeah, because there was so yeah. much to talk about on just one <laughs> one well, job. So uh, let's schedule another one. Sounds sure. great. I'll talk. Let's just talk to Chip. Do it. Sounds All great. Right. Appreciate Great. it, Danny. Jimmy. Thanks, Danny. Jimmy. Matt. All right, guys. All right, guys. Have a good night, guys. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. What's going on, everybody? It is Chris Aiken from the Classic Metal Show and Aftershocks TV. And before we get to this next episode, I just wanted to remind you that I have a book out there called And Other Things I Should Not Say. It is about the absolute debauchery that raged in my world. When I was stationed overseas in Korea, as well as a little bit of Arizona and some basic training and AIT stories as well, it's kind of my military book. It is wild, friends. I'm going to tell you now, it is definitely not biblical reading. <laughs> so make sure you go over and get it. It's on Amazon.com or my website, Chris Aiken Books, and other things I should not say. Get it now if you're bold enough to dare, all right? All right, here's the episode you actually came to see.